Welcome back to The Compass, the sermon-based podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to join us again. We are currently in a series entitled Worship Matters. But before we get to that, I would take this opportunity to invite you to join us at Calvary for worship. We'd love to see you. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And you can find out more information about the church by visiting www.calvaryfayetteville.com or calling us at 479-442-4634. You can even email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Well, as stated before, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series entitled Worship Matters with a message entitled The Perspective of Worship, taken from Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24. Let's listen together. I don't know if you realize it or not, but God wired us up that taking truth and putting that in the form of melody, in the form of music, that uh, it speaks to our hearts in a very special way. It's why music is so powerful in our lives, for good and for bad. Uh, To draw us towards God, it's also powerful in drawing us away from God. Uh, When we uh, give ourselves to the wrong message in music. But what a privilege it is. And I appreciate so much the, the story about that last song, about coming back to the heart of worship. The heart of worship is worship that comes from the heart. Uh, as you've heard me say, it is um, worship is state of the heart, not state of the art. Uh, all the other stuff around it uh, uh, that maybe enhances it, if we're not careful, can even take away from it. That ultimately, uh, worship uh, is worship of the heart. It's worship in spirit and truth. And speaking of that, read with me our uh, theme verses for this series. Can we put them on the screen, please? John chapter 4, Jesus' words. Read these out loud uh, in unison with me. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so with those thoughts in mind, we're going to return to a passage uh, that we looked at last month, actually, in our series called Reset. Uh, we were talking about resetting for the new year, the priority of worship. That was a single message that kind of laid the foundation or set the stage for this series of messages beginning in February on the topic of worship, that worship matters. And so from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we have a very uh, interesting picture drawn for us uh, by the author of this great book. Before we read it, uh, let me remind you where we have been, where we've come from, where we are today. We talked on our first Sunday about the priority of worship, that worship, your worship, is the most important thing in your life. Now, you may not acknowledge it as such. You may not believe, perhaps, that last statement, but you will one day 
come to understand, if not in this life, certainly when you face Jesus in the next, that worship was a priority of life while you were in this life on this earth. It's more important than your career. It's more important than your education. It's more important in your relationship with God even than your own family. The priority of worship, it is the most important thing in your life. Then we talked about the path to true worship. We talked about that the last couple of Sundays. Uh, We talked about this journey of life that God has for us, and each of us walk a different path. Uh, We don't have exactly the same life experiences, but that God uses the experiences of life, both good experiences and very painful experiences, to bring us to a place where the unnecessary things of life get stripped away so that our worship can be pure worship from the heart. That just like Jacob, who had a lot of stuff in his life, it was through the painful journey he had to walk in life that caused him to really see God for who he is. And also like Job, that after all of his loss, after all of his pain, Job saw God more clearly than he ever did before. So that brings us today to the perspective of worship, how we view worship, how we, how we see worship. Now, if you'll remember in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, what we know about this book is, is that, first of all, the author is unknown to us. We don't know for sure who authored it, except for the fact that certainly God authored it. But we don't know who, uh, what man or woman may have been used to write these words down and record them for us. It's written, though, to Jewish Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution. And these are Christians that are very familiar with their Jewish traditions, with the Old Testament law in particular. Because this book is written from a very Jewish perspective, and uh, these people had been scattered. And because of persecution, though, uh, these Christians were being tempted, were being drawn back to their Judaism. They were being drawn back to uh, their Jewish traditions and Old Testament law. And the writer is writing to them and basically saying to them, understand, Jesus is better. You You have moved on from those things and you don't need to return to them because the going has gotten tough. Christ is better than all of those, and he is the fulfillment of all of that, and he challenges them to stay true to Jesus and to this new covenant. And so uh, he says Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament law. He is the fulfillment of that. He is better than all the practices you have uh, grown up practicing. And he, worship of Jesus in Christ in this New Testament era is better than the Old Testament worship. In fact, in chapter 12, he, he puts it this way. There are two mountains that uh, illustrate your worship. Now, some of that sounds familiar to you, but let's take up our reading with verse 18. In fact, I'd like for you to go ahead and stand with me while we read from God's Word, please. 
out of respect and uh, reverence to the Word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's Mount Sinai worship. Now he shifts to another mountain in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal or joyous gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. All right, have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Not so comfortable that you go to sleep, but comfortable so that you can pay attention to the things I want to share with you today. I realize that uh, if, if you are not uh, steeped in the word of God, if you've not uh, studied the scripture long and hard, or at least regularly, these words sound maybe kind of strange to you. Uh, So I want to try to make sense out of them. I I told you last month when we read this text and used it kind of as jumping off place uh, in a subject about worship, that we would come back to it and, and maybe expound it a little more deeply and help you understand exactly what he's saying. It's a tale of two mountains here. And uh, the apostle, uh, as I said, well, I say the apostle, whoever the author is, has told us in this book that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He is superior to Joshua. He is superior to Aaron, to the old covenant, to the tabernacle, for he is the fulfillment of that. He is in every way superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, some of you, uh, I hope a lot of you, uh, are reading the Bible through this year. And I know a lot of you are maybe reading it chronologically. So uh, perhaps this past week, I've heard several of you mention it. Same is true for me and my wife. We've completed the book of Leviticus. Uh, Amy Parton is one of those strange people that just loves the book of Leviticus. She has trouble with Ezekiel, but she really gets into Leviticus. So um, I'm just picking on her. Uh, but you've, you've come through a, a portion of Scripture that if you're reading the Bible through for the first time or you've not uh, done this often before, uh, and even if you have, you find Leviticus to be a rather, uh, a rather difficult book. It's talking about all these sacrifices, all, of these, all this worship, uh, and all of these strange practices, different kinds of offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, wave offerings. Give it a wave offering this morning, would you? Okay. Um, 
And all these different details about uh, the priest's garb, uh, their priestly uh, robes, their, the turban that they would wear, and about how they would offer sacrifices, and it has to be their, you know, this big toe and this thumb and this earlobe. And, and it's like, what is all of that about? And I have to confess to you, I'm not sure I know. It's pretty detailed. It's, uh, it, it's pretty, uh, it almost sounds like a puzzle to have to be worked to get it all right. Remember these days, remember this particular thing, when, when a person is clean and when a person is unclean and, and all of these details. But understand, uh, let me just kind of give you a, a broad, big picture uh, understanding. Understand that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they didn't have to go through all that business. They had a perfect relationship with God. They were the only two people in the history of the world that had true free will. Nobody since then ever has. Why? Because they used their free will to disobey and to rebel. And once they did, the Bible said sin came upon all men for all of sin. We've all inherited a sin nature. We're all coming to this world spiritually dead, spiritually nothing to offer God. We have no capacity for doing the will of God in our own strength, in our own ability. We do have a sort of free will. God's given us that as humans. But understand that free will is in bondage. It is in bondage to sin. It has no ability to choose the right thing unless God redeems it. Unless God comes and calls us out of that darkness and gives us the gift of repentance and faith. So Adam and Eve didn't start off with all these rules and regulations. But after man fell, God gave very detailed instructions about holiness and about worship and about the law, about how to live, how to live civilly in the world how to live morally, how to live religiously, and understand what was given at Mount Sinai was a gift from God. It was the law of God given to man. Yet at the same time, it was a law that could never be fulfilled in the flesh. God gave us this to show us our sinfulness, to show us His majesty, to show us who he is time and again in the Old Testament. Through the law, through the uh, prophets, you'll find a phrase over and over and over again. And it is the Lord saying that they may know that I am the Lord their God. God required all of this to show his holiness now, we couldn't live up to it, so thankfully, in contrast to Mount Sinai worship, we now have Mount Zion worship. What I want to do today is to contrast uh, the two of these for you, to not just to give you the information. There's objective truth we have to understand here, but listen to me now, follow me now. The objective truth in these verses need to subjectively change how you feel, 
how you think of God and how you relate to God. In summary, basically the book of Hebrews is this. Jesus is a better mediator between man and God. He has provided for us a better covenant that was enacted upon better promises. And as a better high priest, he has offered better sacrifice that assures us of a better hope, a better possession, and a better country, namely the new heavens and the new earth in every way. Jesus is better. Say that with me. In every way, Jesus is better. So let me ask you two questions to kind of prompt your thoughts. What did you bring with you to church today? What did you bring with you to church today? That question's already been asked, and it wasn't even planned. The Spirit kind of coordinated that. What did you bring with you to church today? And second, what did you come expecting to happen? What did you come to this place expecting to happen? Well, let's start with that first question. And as I look over the audience here, I have determined today that nobody came into this place with a goat in tow. I know the majority of you don't even have a goat. Lydia does. She could have brought a goat into church today had we been living in the Old Testament days. Had we been living in the Old Testament days, the rest of you would have found one if you didn't have one. Why? Because in Old Testament worship, you had to bring a sacrifice. A goat, a ram, a bull maybe. That was a pretty expensive sacrifice, only required of some. But for the rest of us poor folks, maybe two turtle doves or a pigeon. But we would have brought some kind of sacrifice. And that sacrifice would have been killed. And the blood of that sacrifice would have been sprinkled on the altar. Or we might have brought a grain offering. That was the way things worked in the Old Testament. But even though we obeyed that process and we did what God required from the book of Leviticus and we followed uh, his law you know, to, down to the T to do it exactly right, at the same time, we would have no confidence that our sins were taken care of over the long haul. We had to do it over and over and over and over again. Instead, you came here today with your Bible in your hand. At least I hope you did. But not an animal sacrifice. And you were able to come that way because there are things that we know. And there are things that we're confident of. And there are things that we are assured of. We come here knowing that the only sacrifice that could ever atone for our sins 
has already been offered once and for all by Jesus. We come here confident that the obedience to the law required of us has already been provided in the sinless life of Jesus. We couldn't keep that law perfectly, but Jesus did it for us. We come here assured that the penalty required because of our sin has already been paid by the death of Jesus on the cross. He died in our place. We deserved uh, the cross and hell, but he paid the price on the cross for us and defeated death for us. We come here confident that God actually wants us to come boldly to his throne of grace and to find mercy and help in a time of need. Jesus, as we read already, the Father is seeking those kind of worshipers. We come here knowing that Jesus, as Hebrews 7, 25 tells us, stands joyfully at the right hand of the Father to intercede on our behalf. We have all of those assurances. Those are glorious and life-changing truths. They are truths of the gospel and what the gospel offers you and me. And that's why we are to worship God in spirit and in Truth, the truth of the gospel. But we're also to worship God in spirit. Now, that's only possible with the Holy Spirit. But it also involves the, the deepest emotions of praise and thanksgiving that wells up inside of us as a result of the presence of God the Holy Spirit. We, we often think about our sporting teams and the spirit squads, you know, that try to, try to build up the enthusiasm. Well, understand it is the, it is the Holy Spirit that ultimately builds up and gives to us the, the deepest of emotions of praise and of thanksgiving and of gratitude to God for what he has done. In other, other words, the objective truths of the gospel stir up within us the subjective feelings and expectations in worship. So the second question, what did you come here expecting? I'm afraid that many of us, I'm guilty of this, of going to the house of God not conscious, not conscious of any expectations at all. It's just Sunday. Been doing this for Lord knows how many years. When I was a kid, I had to be drugged. To church. I was into drugs. I had to be drugged to church. But I have an idea that most of us were not raised in an environment that taught us to expect something from God. To expect something that would honor God, something supernatural to take place. What did you come expecting today? And under, under Mount Sinai worship, there was no expectation of things being different. They were going through the steps. They were offering their sacrifices, but it didn't change anything long-term. But under the new covenant, everything is different. 
So in the time I have left today, let me just draw to your attention. Now, this is going to scare you because I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to tell you seven things here and then seven things here. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, we'll be here till nightfall. No, we won't. Mount Sinai experience. What was it like? Well, we read some verses here, uh, verse 18 and 19, 20, and 21. But let me back up. Let me back up to the book of Exodus. You can, after you go home today, look up and read Exodus chapter 19 and 20. But let me just read a few verses from those two chapters because this was the event of the children of Israel coming to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Imagine being there on that day, seeing the mount, seeing the smoke, hearing all of these sounds. Chapter 20 continues. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the closest these people had ever been to God. And it was terrifying. They didn't want to hear from God directly. They said, Moses, you absorb his words and then pass them along to us. But, don't, but tell him not to speak to us directly. This worship was terrifying. It was foreboding. It was intimidating. Seven things you can list that were the marks of Mount Sinai worship. It was a tangible or touchable mountain. It was a literal place. That mountain still stands today. It was a tangible, touchable mountain. There was a blazing fire. There was darkness. There was gloom. There was a tempest, or in other words, the sound of a whirlwind. A tornado. There was also the sound of a trumpet. 
And there was a voice that so utterly terrified them that they begged for God to shut up. Can you imagine going to church on Sunday with God's people, hoping and praying that God would just be quiet? Now, you and I, we would never say that publicly. But can I say to you that we're guilty of that all the time. We don't really want to hear from God unless God is going to tell us what we want to hear. Because if God talks to me, if God speaks to me out of his word, if God speaks to me through the, through the words of a Sunday school teacher or through the words of a hymn or a chorus song, if God speaks to me through a preacher, then I've got to be responsible with what I do, with what I hear. So God, let's just have a worship service and visit with our friends and Go home unchanged. That's the attitude. That's the perspective of Mount Sinai. It is a place of an image of awesome majesty. It's what we have here. And yet, in spite of how near they were to God, God still seemed distant, remote, obscured, so far away, so unapproachable. Understand this. This is not just two expressions of worship. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's not just, follow me now, it's not just an expression of two different kinds of worship. It is an expression of two ways of viewing our relationship with God. At Sinai, there is gloom and doom. That's how I think of God. I better stay in line or he's going to zap me dead. He is an unapproachable God. He is fearful. But at Zion, there is joy and freedom. There is a God who begs you to draw near. The God of Mount Sinai said, don't come near this mountain, don't even touch it, for even if one of your animals touches it, it shall die. But at Mount Zion, there's joy and freedom. And you have a God who begs you to come close, to draw near. So what do we see at the Mount Zion experience? Well, the author turns his attention to the worship of God and the relationship we have with God as a result of the gospel under the terms of the new covenant. Notice when he began in verse 18, he says, you have not come. Now he says in verse 22, but you have come. You are already here. It is a recurrent theme in Hebrews and throughout the New Testament. Come. Jesus invites to come. 
let whosoever will may come. Come, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can now draw near to God. You can come to God and can do so without the slightest tinge of fear or hesitation that you might be rejected. Everything about our lives as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ is about nearness and dearness. Now notice, in contrast to the seven realities of Mount Sinai worship that said, stay away doom and gloom. He gives specifically seven features of Mount Zion worship. Notice how he describes it. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Three different descriptions describing basically the same truth. Mount Zion is the place Uh, that David had to go and capture. It was the original city that became later Jerusalem. It was the city of the Jebusites. It was Mount Zion where even before the Jebusites were there, Abraham had to go and was offering Isaac as a sacrifice and obedience to God on this place, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah. This is where ultimately the temple is going to be built in the future and had been by the time the book of Hebrews was written for us. So we have it called uh, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the place that is waiting for you and me eternal in the heavens. The heavenly Jerusalem is our home. It is our ultimate place uh, of worship. And, and it was symbolized by a place on earth, by Mount Zion, by Mount Moriah, by Jerusalem. But all of that was a picture of what was to come. The mountain to which we have come is the heavenly Jerusalem. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul tells the Philippians, we have this recorded multiple times in the New Testament, for our citizenship is in heaven. Secondly, he said, we have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The word festal, the only time it's used in the New Testament, in the Bible. It's a word that means joyous. It is a joyous festival type gathering. And he says, and taking place there, those worshipers are innumerable. And the word is myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels. And there is a fervent joy that is implied by this gathering. It's in stark contrast to the thunderings and the lightnings and the cloud and the doom and the gloom and the darkness of the Old Testament worship where year after year thousands of bulls and goats and sacrifices would be offered because the blood continually pointed towards a Savior to come. And finally, once He has come, now we don't come any longer with goats and with, and with bulls to offer sacrifices. We come to offer the sacrifice of praise because that's what's going on around the throne of the one who gave himself for us. 
It is a fervent joy. It is a place. You've heard me say it before. I don't know if you've come to believe it yet or not. That right now, right now, as we have come to this place, the gathered people of God, the Calvary family, and as we have lifted up our voices in praise and worship of the Lord, and as we are, offer our prayers in this altar and in this room, and then as we meet together and encourage one another and fellowship with one another, and as we sit here under the Word of God and ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher to help us understand the words of this book, God's Word for us, and as each in our own experience and our own needs, ask God for a touch, for, a, for Him to speak to us, for Him to work in our lives as we surrender ourselves to him, understand, understand that, that literally, in the eyes of God, we are right now in that place spiritually, and we are offering our, our praise. We are in festal, joyous gathering with the angels of heaven, and not only the angels of heaven, but the other saints who have gone on before us. When we meet for worship, we, the church militant, and I don't mean that we, we have to be fighting a fight so much, but we are in a spiritual warfare, are we not in this world? Doesn't the Bible describe that? Doesn't the book of Ephesians tell us we have armor, the word of God, and we have the, we have the uh, uh, helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and, and all these things, breastplate of righteousness, that we are the church militant. We're still fighting the battle for the cause of Christ in this world. That we, the church militant, join there with the church triumphant. Those who have already won their battle and they no longer have to war the spiritual warfare. We join them in that festal gathering of praise every time we come together. I wonder what the angels of heaven think. I don't know if they can see us. The Bible speaks of angels longing to look into the things that, that's going on in your life and ours. But you see, the angels, listen, they don't have to be coaxed into how to worship. Man, they are worshiping God with abandon. And I just wonder sometimes, are the angels looking down on you and me and saying things like, look at those humans. Don't they know they have been forgiven? Don't they realize they have been freely given eternal life when all they ever deserved was eternal death? Don't they realize they are praising the God of heaven and earth? Can't they see the beauty and majesty and glory of this great God of ours? I wonder what they think when they look at you and me in the way we come to the house of God to worship. You see, we have experienced grace and forgiveness Something that they can't understand because they never needed it. We have greater reasons to worship the God of heaven than the angels of heaven do. And yet most of the time, we are, we are just who we are. 
Number three, we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That was verse 23. What is this assembly of the firstborn? These are God's saints. These are God's people. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. These are those whose names were written down in the Lamb's book of life even before God created the universe. And if you're a believer, your name is there and my name is there already in heaven. And we have come, he said, when we worship, we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We are members of, of this of this church family here, but we join with that universal church, that spiritual family that is there, the saved out of the nation of Israel and the others, uh, Gentiles, who were grafted in. We are one people in God and before God, and that's who we assemble with in worship. Number four, we have come to God the judge of all. When we worship together, we are in the very presence of God. Now don't worry that it calls him judge here because your judgment has already been taken care of in Jesus. The price of your sin has already been paid by Christ. This is a reminder that he is still the judge of the world. And there's ultimately going to be a day that he judges evildoers and unbelievers from his throne. So we've come to God. Number five, we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's, the, that's that group of saints, again, that are there. But understand, as of now, they are there in spirit. They're not there in bodily form. Your dead loved ones who knew Christ, their spirits are with the Lord. But there's coming a day their bodies will be resurrected. They will be given a glorified body. That we will be there not just spiritually but bodily. But for now we are joining the spirits of the righteous that have been made perfect and complete in Jesus. Number six, and we have come to Jesus, the mediator of our new covenant, the one who made possible this new uh, relationship, this Mount Sinai, uh, or not Mount Sinai, but Mount uh, Zion worship. We don't come to God by way of Moses. Moses is not our mediator. We don't come by way of Mary. Mary is not our mediator. Or Aaron, or Sarah, or Joshua, or Daniel, or Isaiah, or Paul, or Peter, or any other great person of the Old or New Testament. We have only one mediator, and that mediator is Jesus Christ himself. 2 Timothy I believe it's chapter 2, verse 15. And then he says, maybe the strangest statement, we have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood is talking about the blood of Jesus. Just like in the Old Testament, the priest had to sprinkle the blood on the altar and there on the mercy seat on uh, the Day of Atonement, just as the sacrificed blood had to be applied in order 
to bring about forgiveness and a fulfillment of the requirements of the law, understand the blood of Jesus. We are redeemed by his sacrificial blood and his blood had to be sprinkled. I believe while Jesus was in the grave, I think that one thing he did as our great high priest is that he took his own blood into the holy of holies in heaven and sprinkled his blood on the altar there once for all providing an atonement, a covering for our sins. And that's what he's talking about here, the sprinkled blood. But he mentions the blood of Abel. Why does he do that? Well, if you remember, Abel was the first man to ever have his blood shed in the history of of mankind. His brother Cain slew him. And the Bible teaches us that, that the shed blood of Abel cries out for vengeance and for justice that Cain had to answer for his sin of shedding innocent blood, that the blood of Abel spoke loudly. It cried out. It cried out from the ground to God, and it declared and it called for vengeance and for justice. And as great as that was and as significant as that was, understand, it's the blood of Jesus that speaks of forgiveness and for pardon. That in the death of Abel, someone owed a debt. But when it came to Jesus, he paid the debt for all the rest of us. So let me leave you with a question today. What difference does all that make in how we come into the house of God on Sunday? When you invite your neighbor or a family member or a friend to come to church with you, what do you invite them to come to? What is your perspective of worship? Is it more shaped by the old covenant and its worship? A God who is unapproachable? Sacrifices, well, of the Old Testament, bulls and goats, year after year, over and over again, maybe in your mind, you having to make sacrifices over and over again, pleading for God to forgive you for the very same thing continually. A Mount Sinai form of worship, fearful, gloomy, forbidden, It basically says, keep your distance. Stay away. Or is your thought new covenant worship? Full and unhindered access to God. A joyful gathering of the redeemed and of the angels. Mount Zion worship, a place where there is exaltation of openness of acceptance, worshiping a God whose arms are spread wide because he spread them wide for you one day 2,000 years ago on a cross. Now his arms are spread wide, beckoning you to come, saying there's room for you at the foot of the cross. There's room for you. Is that the way you invite your friends? Come Worship the living God with me. We will lift up his name in song. We will fellowship with God's people. We're going to to worship him in a way that, that is 
supernatural, not because of anything we do, but because we're going to be reaching out and touching heaven. I'm not saying that when we gather, there's not a time for quiet reflection, that we shouldn't tremble in awe of God's majesty and His holiness. I'm not saying that there should not be lament sometimes in our worship where we express our guilt and our sin, but understand that there's always the forgiveness, that when we come together to worship, His holiness does not keep us at arm's length. We have complete forgiveness. As one writer has said, that that all Christian worship is an experience of serious joy. Now think about that. Serious joy. That's exactly what it is. Everything about the life of the church in the new covenant says, come find acceptance here. Be a part of this community. Be a part of this family. Let your perspective of praise and worship be such that you radiate the blessing of God to others. That when you invite them and encourage them to come, that your life itself is the attraction that draws them to Christ. May our worship always reverberate with the light and love and forgiveness of Mount Zion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to come to you with sacrifices in tow. Sacrifices, though prescribed by you and ordained by you, does not close the distance of our journey to you. Thank you that your son Jesus closed the distance for us, paid the price for us, was the ultimate lamb without blemish and without spot. Father, I pray that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice right now that does not know you in a personal relationship, that they will come to you today. If they need help, give them the strength and courage to call on someone to help show them the way. And Father, may we as your children, may we have a whole new perspective of what it means to worship you and to come before you with God's people and help us to do so with joy for the victory has already been won. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.